Yeah, I actually started doing um, transcendental meditation. Are, yeah. you, are you familiar with it? I don't know um, what makes it transcendental. <laughs> I think it's. Never, a, I think there's it? a railroad. <laughs> yeah. It crosses a border. Yeah, I think that's what it does. Welcome to Ordinary Voices. I'm your host, Eric Elkin. This show has a mission to invite ordinary people into spiritual conversations to help them find hope in life. So no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, I'm thankful you decided to listen today and I pray you find it helpful. If this is your first time listening, this is what you need to know. I'm a pastor who talks way too much and my therapist said a podcast would teach me how to listen better. (laughs) I'm just kidding. It was a self-diagnosis with a lot of outside support. I just wanted to create a spiritual conversation where ordinary people decided both the starting point and the direction. Then I would listen and respond. So this show is about people's questions, struggles, and opinions that don't always reflect my own views. You'll probably hear something you disagree with or may even make you angry. I just want you to listen like a good camp counselor. A good camp counselor allows children to express themselves without judgment. They listen to what the camper is trying to say. People who listen tend to understand each other better. So with all this in mind, let's begin today's show, Carl's Decision. My guest today is Carl. He is what they call in Brooklyn, where his parents are from, full-blown Norwegian. He was a camper, a counselor in training, and a staff member at the camp I ran in New York, Koinonia. Carl was raised in Philadelphia, but decided to attend my alma mater, Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota. (laughs) We joked he was accepted into Concordia's diversity program. I mean, come on. East Coast Norwegian is a rare thing in Minnesota. The last I had heard before losing touch, he was doing video production for ESPN's X Games. But then last summer, when he came to Minneapolis with his partner Christy and their newborn daughter Lilia, I learned he had given up ESPN to work with homeless youth in Denver. I just thought it'd be interesting to listen to his story and to see where the conversation went from there. You'll be listening to roughly 20 minutes of a four-hour conversation. (laughs) One editor's note, it was a beautiful spring day, so I decided to record in the gazebo of my backyard, which is typically a very quiet place, except for this day. For some reason, every garbage truck in the universe decided to drive up and down our street, so I apologize for that decision. But I do hope you hear the bird songs. We enter Carl's story following his graduation from college, so let's listen to Carl. like going to a job fair and there was something called CONUS Communication which is out of Minneapolis and they were doing like satellite downloads and all these different things and I was kind of like interested in it but I was like this seems really boring you know like because in college you're like moving around and like when you're the technical producer of something you're just as big as you can get right you know creatively and kind of direction wise and then when you get out of that situation, you're just like, you're just a tool, you know, you're just a cog. And um, 
So I was like, ah, I just gotta get out of here. So I think I went back home because I knew people that were involved in the entertainment industry in the East Coast um, where things were happening. And I uh, worked for the X Games for ESPN. Um, the summer games were in Philadelphia. And that was awesome. I mean, that was like, all right, this is it. Um, super exciting. They totally hook you up, like, with swag and, like, just all kinds of amenities. At least back then they did. Right. Um, and I'm like, okay, this is what I want to do. And then, like, you know, I worked really hard um, and kind of proved myself to do the Aspen X Games during that time I was also like well this isn't like gonna pay the bills or anything what should I do and um, I can't remember if I actually signed up for this in at the end of college or when I was in Philadelphia but um, Christy was in a, a thing called the Urban Servant Corps in Denver Colorado which is simple living community Lutheran based lived in this house um, with a bunch of other folks and worked at like a nonprofit agency. I was like, well, I guess I could do that while I figure out this video production thing. Um, so I moved to Denver, Colorado, which was exciting too. I've never been that far out west. Right, right. I did it. Oh no, I came out and visited, but it almost seemed like I didn't know much about it. It just seemed like, oh, awesome. Um, and I got into it, and then I started thinking about, like, prior experience working with kids at camp. And I was like, oh, maybe it'll be, like, somewhat like that, um, because the agency I was going to work with was working with street youth, um, homeless youth, and I was going to be on the street literally talking to people. Um, and so I go into the situation pretty blind, pretty green, um... You know, I mean, although I grew up around Philadelphia, that doesn't really equate with, like, working with kids that are just, like, so disenfranchised. But I thought it might. You know, I'd be like, oh, I'm the Philly kid. <laughs> but they don't care. <laughs> um, so, like, you know, I went in and, and I And you was, don't exactly live inner city Philly, though, either. No, no, yeah, I didn't. Yeah. But, you know, like... I grew up in, like, yeah. kind of blue-collar, right. you know, place. Koinonia's summer program was one of the most diversified programs I've ever worked with. Campers came from all kinds of backgrounds. We had kids from the wealthiest neighborhoods in the United States to homeless kids, middle-class kids to foster care agency kids. The staff was a mixture of East Coast and Midwestern college kids. It was a Lutheran camp, but not all the staff were necessarily Lutheran. Some kids went to church, but for a lot of the campers, camp was one of their first religious experiences, and this shaped Carl's life. Carl will refer to Urban Peak. It's a non-religious, non-profit agency working with homeless youth in Denver, Colorado. So at Urban Peak, I got involved just meeting the youth, being a part of that. And, like, you see all these people kind of come and go. And I was like, oh, I want to stay. Like, I want to, this isn't like a, 
you know, a vacation. <laughs> right. It's not just a time out. Like, this is, like, real stuff. And there was, like, youth I was working with that I thought, like, maybe I'm helping in some way. I didn't know what kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, I'd like to do this again. Um, but I think one of my prereqs is that I could take the winter off. <laughs> Not the winter, but it was like a month and a half into the X Games. Okay. So, like, for me, the justification was, like, I really do feel like I'm at a crossroads. I need to see if this is something I want to do. Because I was still really interested in that. At the end of my second X Games, I was offered a job. Oh. I was offered a job with a company in North Carolina. And I think my only hang-up about it was, like, I can't move to North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> you got to that crossroads. North Carolina jobs offered. Yeah. You got kind of X game things going. Right. What What makes you make that decision to not go that way? You know, it was a combination of the youth. Like, you just, like, you just start to get into it. What's going on with these youth? Like, I just, like, almost like the study of it. And some fascination and just relationships. So I'd already had established these relationships that I thought meant something. Not like I was super duper helpful, but like there's something about the relationship of me not being in their situation, but not being judgmental, not being, not having an agenda. Um, and like, you know, we're constantly giving stuff, like whether it's like a physical thing or just like information. So like, that seemed to have some value with some people. Um, so, and coupled with, like, there was just a lot of super dynamic people that worked at the organization when I was there um, that really were great teachers. I didn't think they needed me, but there's something I needed that I needed to figure out. didn't ask Carl what that thing was that he needed to figure out because I'm not sure if he knows, but something was leading him in a direction that I would call outside the norm. Let's continue to listen. I mean, a lot of the kids were older. I didn't really understand the age range, so they were like pretty close to my age. Okay. So I was 24, 23 at the time. And so what were they, 20s? Um, a lot of them were like late teens, early 20s. Yeah. Like youth defined like nationally as like 14 to 24. So oh. under 25. Um, I think they wanted to push it up to 30. <laughs> or some people do and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> That used to be a midlife. Yeah, maybe maybe now. I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, so I know I wasn't necessarily prepared for like seeing a sixteen-year-old who's using heroin, or um, you know, seeing a kid that just like you know is like experiencing this for the first time. And as an hour, as a street outreach worker, you're not like there to tell people what to do because the minute you do that your your game's over nobody's going to listen to you oh you know because okay. um, it'll just 
you know, it's it's its own culture. So like, it'll just spread around. Like, well, Carl said I had to go do this. Um, so you really have to come at it from a different approach. How'd you come at it? Um, I was just so like. I think one thing about me is like I get nervous and shy to a certain extent, and that probably showed itself. But maybe they thought I was listening. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm probably just nod my head and be like, oh, shit. Like, I don't know what the answer is. And it's mostly, like, in my head, I'm like, I don't know what the answer is. And that's sometimes a good place to come by. Because if you think you have the answer, you're probably going to say it. Right. And the minute you do that, like, it sounds like you're telling somebody what to do. Um, unless they're asking for it. So was the thing with that that culture that... Um, I mean, one of the things I, I, I personally feel that there are some kids that are homeless because of situations, or some kids that are yeah. homeless because of choice, so wanting to, a free lifestyle kind of thing, where nobody's telling them what to do. Is that an accurate thing, or is that... Choice? I don't know. Choice is a... Like, it is interesting when people say choice. Like, I don't know if there's a, anybody there, there that really chooses that kind of lifestyle. Okay. Um... I mean, they might, even when people say, hey, I'm choosing to do this, yeah, I'll be like, oh, okay, I guess you're choosing to do this, but I'm not sure if, like, the origin of that is choice. Right, right. Um, so that's, yeah, I mean, that's one thing I learned. Like, I think I was coming at a perspective, like, oh, well, you can just, like, go back. Right. <laughs> like, the door's open, you know? Right. And sometimes that door's just partially open or it's like it's a lot more complicated than somebody that, having a choice that family of origin situation is more complicated is that what you're saying or yeah I mean it's super complicated I don't even understand to this day like I can't really define like broadly all the time like what's going on it's right. so individualized so I mean there are f parents out there there are like teachers in life whatever that have really tried everything. I know that. And that, you know, maybe there's a a mental health issue or maybe they did get too involved with substances at a young age. Um, that they're not, like, trying to mask over some, like, total abuse. But saying that, I mean, the majority of it, to me, doing this work comes down to abuse. Really? There, There's some form of abuse going on in most cases not everyone not everyone I mean you have like extreme mental health mm -hmm. or extreme addiction where there wasn't any abuse but that's like the rarity and that work you're like trying to like figure out okay well I came at it from this perspective you know and constantly learning about this other perspective and it's not until you meet like you know 200 kids even like that have ended up whittled down to like oh yeah the street's the best place for me this is where i feel safe this is where people accept me that you're like oh i see okay i see what's going on here and like oh this might be the best spot for you at the moment is it gonna be the best spot for life probably not but at the moment when somebody vocalizes this is more safe than home you know, you get raped by your uncle. Is it safer? I think so.
You know, like, because the, sh- the street families can protect you from, from that. And, like, there's a lot of justice within the street family that you're like, all right, okay, I see what's going on here because you know the story. But a lot of times you don't know that story, so you're like... Carl's perspective on his job is going to challenge a lot of listeners. I know it challenges me in a good way. As I was listening to him talk about how he needs to present himself, void of judgment and agendas, I started thinking about my own work. How do I let an agenda stand in the way of authentically encountering my neighbor or the people in the congregation I serve? Some might say you're a pastor, you're supposed to have an agenda. But if it stands in the way of my really listening, I'm not so sure. Carl says something here that I think everybody should know. Just because you think it is a choice, or the person says it's a choice, does not necessarily mean it is a choice. One of the most frustrating things working with at-risk, abused, or disenfranchised children walking along with their wounds, unable to fix them. We want to fix things. We see it as a sign we care, but it's not always received that way. Matter of fact, it's often received the exact opposite. As we continue, I ask Carl what he finds frustrating. kind of stuff that would find you so frustrating that it would take the joy of what you were doing away. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I think, like, there wasn't anything that was, like, really... I don't know if it's my personality or whatever. Like, I wasn't ever, like, uh, coming home on a daily basis and being frustrated with, like, oh, I don't know why this youth doesn't do this mm-hmm. you know or do that it would always come down to like I don't know why society is doing this and doing that and that's where I'd really get drained out and I still do to this day like I just I'm but, like why, why do we like why are we abusing the crap out of people like to where like there's this it creates a subculture it creates this culture of like people that are just living in it and turning to you know substances or unhealthy relationships over and over again or um those have, so those are the things that drain me not like like you know when i even to this day when i hear people like i don't understand why they don't do this and it might even be another worker and i'm like i don't even want to hear that like <laughs> i don't like, don't fill up my space with that st- stuff because, you know, maybe that's a teaching moment for me and I can teach other people. And I usually do, but it's still frustrating. Like, no, nah, I don't think that's a question. Like, um, it, so. is, it is hard. I find it hard. I find it, I find, um, actually, I, I find it very difficult to cope with the people that cannot see how the culture itself creates some of the situations. Yeah. 
you know, and I, and, and specifically, I just have, I don't feel like they're not empathetic. They're empathetic, but they want to be able to solve it. And so it'll go sure. away. Yeah. And, and, and quickly. And quickly. And, and your approach in just even in listening here is that there, not only is there's no quick solutions, is, I, I'm not sure what the solutions are. Yeah, you'd have to stop abusing, neglecting, and stop start more of accepting, right. you know, things that you can't, things that people can't control. Because I think like abuse is about control, you know, like you probably or or it's it's either about control or you're just out of control. Mm-hmm. You either want to control somebody or you can't control anything. Right. Um, so like yeah, I don't know what the answers to that are. Um, but those are the things that really drain me. That and bureaucracy at higher levels. That seems, also yeah. seems just as yeah. out of control sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to take a minute to thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, if you find it provides you a healthy challenge to grow, please consider sharing it with a friend. I'm kind of hungry for any comments you'd be willing to share. They really help me improve this show. If you're looking for something to get you spiritually grounded, I send out reflections on life Monday through Friday. Over 1,100 people are reading those daily reflections. It confirms why I started this podcast. People are hungry for a spiritual conversation. If you're interested in receiving those reflections, go to the website ordinaryvoices.org and subscribe to the email list. This is a listener-supported show, and I'm working to make it sustainable so it can continue. If you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking the Patreon button on the website, OrdinaryVoices.org. Thank you again for listening. Now let's rejoin our conversation. Just so you know, Carl took a break from working with homeless youth and from Colorado. He went and lived for a year in New York City with friends, but then made a decision to return. Um, yeah, I did. Um, and then I thought I had this, like, kind of opportunity that didn't really pan out. And then, like, I immediately got a job because I needed a job at the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, which is, like, the biggest game in town okay. in Colorado. Um, it worked in permanent supportive housing with uh, chronically homeless adults. So these are adults that were probably on the street for a long time, now in housing, now I need a lot of support, which okay. is like an insane job. Like, so it's an evolved version of the youth I worked with. You know, okay. like there's a lot of the same stories, um, but you get to see like, this is what happens if you don't get off the street to some degree. So like, and then dealing with all those complicated issues around mm-hmm. that. So a lot of it's, at that point, it's like, you're just trying to, um, make sure people are safe as they can be and you know unfortunately to some degree like just supporting them along until they're they might die or I mean some people you know I just got a Facebook from somebody one of the younger clients I work with there who just got out and like is living independently but I think that's you know once you're permanent supportive housing it's like all right we're it's like you know assisted living in in some way 
Um, but so you would you would find a, find housing for people? But no, those folks were like had already gone through some intake thing. Like it was a big process and outreach, street outreach. What I was doing to maybe some intake person. Then I just get them. Like they're just kind of fed to me. So how, I was missing the housing. Like, yeah, sorry. Assisted living. Uh, well, I mean, we're not feeding them meals or anything. You're in your, like, your own apartment, but, like, you just need a lot of care by that time. Okay. Like, a lot of case management. Okay. Um, so I was people's representative payees. A lot of those folks can qualified for, like, Social Security. Okay. So I was in control of their money, um, but also trying to, like, be sensitive and not tell them what to do, but also say, like, no, you can't... You can't spend the money on that. Um, so it's like a really complicated relationship, um, you know. And you know, you just see people die, um, as I would in the youth program, so too for overdose and or suicide or any of that. So like, you know, you'd see these people who were your age. What are you, fifty-two? Yeah, fifty-two, going on eighty. And, you know, 1% liver function. Okay. And they look like they're 80. And, you know, I'm not, I'm kind of generalizing. There's definitely some bright points and things like that. I and think. Just, and just to be clear, you were pointing to my age, not that I'm 52, look like I'm 82. Yeah, right? you're, yeah you're a good yeah. 70. You're good. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got, <laughs> 67 tops. Nah. <laughs> so, I mean, there was just a lot. I mean, you're, 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 the amount you, if you can imagine though like for you know people are like listening or whatever like the folks that are on the street like they cost city and public services so much money like emergency services alone and jails you know you know if, if your city is criminalizing homelessness so you're on the street oh you can't do that you know, they'll find the ways to kind of say, no, that's not what we're doing, but it kind of is. Um, you know, you're paying for the jails, you're paying for the food. Like, if you don't have the program, those kids, those adult homeless cr chronically folks are going to use all these emergency services that just cost, like, so much money. start every show asking people to be patient listeners, and here's where we're going to put that to the test. The rest of our conversation is really interesting, but I think it could make a lot of people angry, either with me or with Carl or with the both of us. I can hear people wanting more black and white and definitive answers. Carl challenges me, and I like how it made me really uncomfortable, because he challenged me on something that I hold very dear. Christ is visible in human community. When I try to say this, he warns me about being too specific. His challenge is authentic and valid, don't get me wrong. I hate having my Christian wisdom challenged. <laughs> but I'm still going over this part of my conversation. Not how to convince Carl, but how to be faithful, authentic, and loving to a wounded culture where Jesus is a barrier and not a bridge. Can one do this without an agenda? I don't know if I have the answer to that one yet.
And what does Jesus say repeatedly? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Right. And it pulls us into that community because it knows in the community that's where God is going to be most visible. Yeah, I think once you start to get to specifics, yeah, that's where you run into trouble. Right. You know, like, oh, you actually can't do this. Yeah. It's like, what? I mean, it's, it's, it goes back to what I do. Like, the right. minute I say, no, you can't do this, or no, you should do it like this, you know, I lose people. I lose people immediately. Right. And that's not... It's, it becomes not an open message. I'm not open anymore. I'm, I have a certain uh, agenda, right. you know, for people that I want them to follow for whatever reason. And, and I've been sitting there listening to that, thinking it about in my, my position as a pastor. Should I be telling people what? If they ask, why not? Right. If I'm asking for your guidance on something, of course I'm going to tell you. I might, I might say in my opinion or this or that, but I'm yeah. If you ask, I'm gonna, but if you're not asking for something, and then somebody tells you that no, this is this is how it should be, or this is what I have to do because I'm in this position. I mean, granted, like there are ultimate things about what I do like you know we can't go out and buy a surround sound that just sounds really old (laughs) you know we can't we can't just go buy anything just get you out yeah you are Dolby Dolby stereo (laughs) yeah we can't go out and buy a pong yeah you know but uh, no uh, AFM receivers (laughs) yeah but if I'm saying like, oh, you have to be inside right now. No, you don't have to be inside. I think what bothers me here is Carl, with no intention or malice, has wounded my ego. What is foundational for my faith, what led me to become a pastor, was a belief that Christ meets us where we are at. Not where you want me to be, or not where I should be, but where I am at this moment in my life. In so many ways, I feel Carl is more authentic to this than I am, and he doesn't even know it. But it's okay, because he made me think about how I can be more faithful and authentic, and I needed that. And I think it's also important to say, like, I don't know. Right. You know, I got an answer. Right. That's always really important to me. Yeah. If I say that to somebody, if, if they're asking me for something, I, you know, I think they appreciate it when I'm like, oh, I don't know. Right. I don't know what the answer is there. You know, I remember uh, being a camper at Koinonia with uh, Dan Rowan. And I th- we were doing that whole, like, quest thing. We ended up on, you know, the Dungeons and Dragons type of thing. Was that your group? Yeah, that was my group. Koinonia's program involved a lot of jobs kids did not like to do, for really good reasons. I told counselors one of the best methods was to develop a point system to encourage kids without yelling at them. Dan was one of the greatest counselors of all time, and he took that whole idea to a new level. 
He designed a Dungeons and Dragons-like point system. Kids got character points, strength points, and healing points, and his campers got way into it. It was not some demonic Dungeons and Dragons thing. He connected it to faith, and it was absolutely amazing. I remember, I think like we we started getting on one of those off the off the syllabus religious conversations and we asked I think we straight up asked Dan Rowan like do you believe in God and I think at that point he said I don't know right and I thought that was the best answer I've ever heard right at that point in my life because I, I, I don't know if I heard something I mean he wasn't even I mean he was probably like seven years older or something right, right. but just hearing like an adult type person say I don't know, but, like, I mean, he was still obviously involved with what was going on. Right. And I was just like that. Like, I remember that changed everything for me at that time. Because I still participating, but, like, oh, okay. There's people that doubt, like, what's going on. And he didn't, because he didn't have the answer. He answered it in the most honest way he could at that point. There's something on. And I don't know if he said that verbatim. But that's what I recall. But I would say, I mean, I, um, I think that would have been an authentic answer on his on his part at that time of his life, you know. Yeah. You know, and I and I always sit there, and it's like I don't know. From I mean, for me, I don't know if you can have faith without doubt. Yeah. I don't know if that's that's possible. I guess the thing for me now, as an adult, I don't even know what I'd be doubting. Right. Like, cause, cause I can't even really define what I'm talking about anymore. Right. right. If that makes sense. Like, I can't. Like, faith-wise, and especially in like Christianity and Jesus. I mean, there's, you know, I think it's so a part of me that it's like it's like trying to describe the work I'm doing you know like how people perceive me in work or something like it's just so a part of me and I don't and I don't spend a whole lot of time reflecting about it or like trying to make sense of it honestly based on our listening and talking here I just think there's so much of faith that's just a part of you that you just don't think about it right and then, like, well, I mean, the place I think about the least, honestly, and sadly, is when I go into church. Right. I'm thinking about, like, is this recording? <laughs> like, I'm just thinking it's, like, hokey. It's not something I can really relate to. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I love the parts about it I love are, like, oh, people, like, kids are still going to camp. And they're doing, like, mission trips. Uh, hopefully they're not, like, trying to share their faith, but they're just trying to experience things and maybe talk and reflect about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Like, I just go into those environments, and I'm too focused on whatever the surface thing is there. Like, right. music. Like, oh, this isn't the music I'm going to listen to right now. <laughs> right. right. And then sometimes it is. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, so, I mean, that's, like... One of those things I think, like, Christy and I talk about a lot because we grew up in the same environment. And we're just like, like, sometimes we just so miss, like, going into a church and just 
having that like nostalgic comfort but I don't know if we go into a church and like sit down and be super sincere right um we want to be there's a part of us that truly wants to be Mm -hmm. um but it's like it's not really not there for us and I think like you know that's why we're we love nature and going on hikes and being in the woods and maybe Cornelia screwed it up for me (laughs) (laughs) but maybe that's like maybe there wasn't an alternative for me at the same time because like if there wasn't Cornelia like I don't think I'd I don't know if I'd be going to church necessarily but then what else you know like would I be going to the woods and finding peace there or whatever it is I'm doing in my everyday life you know I don't know when I don't think um, I don't think you would be doing what you're doing. Or, yes, exactly, doing what I'm doing. When I was in college, I wanted nothing to do with faith. I had a complicated relationship with Jesus, and I hear some of that same kind of complication in Carl's reflection. But it would be disingenuous to say they are completely the same. My relationship with Carl actually started in Moorhead, Minnesota. A religion professor who was one of the pastors who started Koinonia specifically to reach kids like Carl asked if I would consider working there. At Koinonia, I discovered I worked well with at-risk kids. I learned many of the same lessons Carl uses to work with street kids. But most of all, I discovered Jesus, and I never looked back. All of this would not have happened if no one invited me. But it also would not have happened had someone told me my main purpose was to get campers to have a personal relationship with Jesus. I was taught to minister to the needs, and you can't minister to the needs unless you know what they are, and you can't know what they are unless you listen. The starting point for listening is not always Jesus. It's listening to the kid that wants to sing Stairway to Heaven for worship because it's a religious song in his eyes. It's listening to the kid that tells you to F off every morning for reasons that still escape me. It's listening to a kid tell you about abuse without flinching, because you know if you flinch, they will feel they are to blame. It's a willingness to walk into places many proper Christians are afraid to go. But make no mistake, what we did at Koinonia, we did in the name of Jesus Christ. Try not to discount Carl's ambiguity. It reflects a deeper journey of faith than can be unpacked in four hours' conversation. And try not to judge my own reflection. Faith is a journey of seeking understanding, and journeys are never short excursions. Our relationship, a pastor, a young man with a non-traditional life in a camp, reflect the great struggle we have in our culture. Koinonia would not be there if a group of people had not bound themselves specifically to the gospel of Jesus Christ to serve children, adults, and families. At the same time, Carl would not be serving the poor if Koinonia had not been an open community that gave freedom for both children and staff to meet Jesus in their own way. Somehow we need to reconcile these two worlds. The Christian faith needs to be challenged about its authenticity and openness, But at the same time, this modern age needs to take seriously what will be lost if the church ceases to exist. As I listened to Carl, I kept coming back to the same story from Matthew 9. And as Jesus sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. 
When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. There is something so authentic about Carl and his partner Christy, who works with HIV patients. They go to the table and they eat with the outcasts. Their lives reflect an approach criticized by religious leaders for not doing the religious rituals, but they proclaim a living mercy. And I think that is what I find beautiful in my relationship with them. Schneckies, I went too long. I'm sorry about but that is our show. I want to thank Carol for sharing and thank you for listening. Please join me next time when I ask a therapist why we don't like ourselves. Until then, please remember to help me invite more people into the conversation. Check out the website, ordinaryvoices.org. Recommend it to people you know. Consider supporting it and let me know what you think. And I think you're on to something with this, you know, like I think you know, I think it can help people reconnect and it can help new people kind of just hear a different voice or a voice they've been looking for. On behalf of all Ordinary Voices, thanks for listening.